I'm sick of us constantly making troubled people our playthings. When we're on Twitter, if, if somebody's spiralling on Twitter, you're making mistakes or whatever, you know, it's quite often because there's something else going on in that person's life. That we don't want to think that. We're amateur sleuths, you know, defining somebody by a few words and a tweet, by the, by the tiniest fragment of their life. And yeah, we don't want to think that that's what we're doing, making troubled people our playthings, but that's what we do all the time. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This is our second episode of season three. We are back from summer hiatus. And I am delighted that my guest is the inimitable journalist, author, podcaster, filmmaker, guy with Welsh accent, John Ronson. Because there have been some recent changes to the podcast, I need to take a few minutes here to tell you all about that as well as announce a few other things. If you've heard all this before, you can skip ahead about three and a half minutes. But for now, this is what I want you to know. Uh, If you haven't noticed already, the listener support piece of the Unspeakable podcast is now on Substack. That is where you're going to go to hear bonus content, participate in comment threads, get discounts on merchandise, come to Hangouts, you're going to find that at megandaum.substack.com. So that's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M.substack.com. And you can find out about the different support tiers. You can subscribe for free, of course, but you can also become a paying subscriber at a very reasonable rate, I should say, and get a lot of very cool extra stuff. And that stuff uh, is going to include writing. This is pretty big. Believe it or not, I am actually a writer. I was a writer before podcasts were invented, I'm pretty sure. And I am going to go back to writing and write some personal essays, which happen to be what I built my whole career on. And if you become a paid subscriber, you get to read them. I also want to remind you about my new podcast, my second podcast, A Special Place in Hell, which I do with Sarah Hader. So please check that out after you listen to this, of course. It's on Substack at especialplace.substack.com. It's also on all your regular podcast apps. Sarah and I do the show every week, and we just released our 11th episode. And basically, it's the two of us saying a lot of unsayable things about the culture, especially as it pertains to women. And we do this through the prism of our 20-year age difference. So there's that. Finally, you have probably heard me talking about my new project, The Unspeakeasy. This is an intellectual community for free-thinking women. I'm still working on the online community portion, but I can tell you that we're going to have these retreats. I'm sometimes calling them sanity spa vacations. And there are going to be two of these coming up this fall in the Northeast. The first is in late September in Vermont, and I think it is sold out, but there will be a second one that will be a little bit bigger in Stony Point, New York, October 25th through 28th. That's about 40 minutes from New York City. And that's Stony Point, not Stony Brook. You can learn more about that by going to theunspeakeasy.com and joining the mailing list. 
I will also be making announcements about the Unspeakeasy on the Substack. And in fact, all of my announcements about writing courses, retreats, stuff I published, anything at all will come through the Substack newsletter. So no more having 12 different websites. MeganDaum.substack.com. Okay, I am going to introduce the guest now. If you listen to this podcast a lot, you are probably someone who follows the culture wars. Sorry to use that tiresome term. That means you are probably also familiar with my guest, John Ronson. When it comes to the subject of life-ruining humiliation via mobs, online or otherwise, John's 2015 book, So You Have Been Publicly Shamed, is both a field guide and something of a sacred text. Since then, and even before then, he's done really interesting work. His 2017 podcast, The Butterfly Effect, was technically about the downstream effects of the pornography industry, but it was really circling around a theme that arises frequently in his work. And that's the way a single moment or seemingly random choice by just one person can result in a massive cultural or political shift. Late last year, John released in collaboration with the BBC, Things Fell Apart. And that's an eight-part podcast that essentially tells the origin story behind eight different examples of hugely polarizing and contentious cultural battles. And that includes the right to abortion, book banning in schools, and the mania known as the satanic preschool panic in the late 80s and early 90s. I'd been wanting to talk with John for a long time, so I'm thrilled that we finally got a chance to talk. This is a nice, long, sprawling interview, and there is some great bonus content at the end, which you can hear if you become a paid subscriber to the Substack. One minor note of clarification. At one point, I refer to a Ms. Magazine cover story about ritual satanic abuse in preschools. That wasn't quite right. There was a 1993 Ms. cover that proclaimed, believe it, cult ritual abuse exists. It wasn't specifically linked to children, but it did have to do with some other mass hysterias going on at the time and was credulous nonetheless, but I wasn't quite right about that. Anyway, uh, John and I were chatting for uh, a little bit before officially starting the interview, and um, I'm going to bring us in here by kind of dipping in mid-chit-chat, since a subject had come up that essentially amounts to my most controversial opinion. I love Tom Waits, but I can't listen to Bob Dylan, for instance. Like, oh, okay. I'm the only person in the world who thinks Bob Dylan is overrated. Do you, do you do you even Bob Dylan like before his voice went? Yeah, higher? I just don't think it's interesting. I don't think he's musical. I know this is blasphemy. This is utter blasphemy. I just don't think he's interesting musically. Yeah, no, my my family my family feel the same way. I'm alone uh, in the house regarding Bob Dylan. Uh, well, you're not alone in the world. So, <laughs> well, yeah. they kindly on my birthday they kindly took me to see the new Scorsese. Uh, Sazy documentary about Bob Dylan, the one about the Rolling Thunder tour in the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, like I was there on the first night, it was at Lincoln Center, the room was like full of 
people who looked exactly like me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say like Bob Dylan, like they were just dressing up. They were they were uh, LARPing or something. Okay. No, it was just, okay. you know, just, just, you know, 300. They were all your, yeah. Nebushi Jewish Upper West Side. Yeah. <laughs> and my wife and Sony just spent the whole three hours looking so bored. They were so generous to sit through that for my benefit. Well, it's your birthday. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. well, okay. All right. Well, enough of that. Um, John, Welcome to The Unspeakable. Megan, thank you for having me. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the podcast very much, so I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. I'm really delighted to have you because I guess you don't remember, but I got in touch with you about two years ago when I started the podcast, and I'm pretty sure you told me that you were so tired of talking about culture war stuff. You just couldn't deal with it anymore. You had to take a break. Um, and so you were gonna, you were gonna graciously pass, and you were very, very nice about it. Um, but here we are now. So I have to ask you, what was going on in your life at that time that you were just unable to engage this issue? Uh, yeah, I went. I went. It wasn't so much about the culture wars. It was kind of about everything, including the culture wars. I, I was, I was, I was exhausted. I, I worked nonstop for thirty-five years. And in 2019, it just sort of, I don't know, something clicked and I just became exhausted and I, and I, I took it, I took a year off. So I can only assume that that, that's, that was when you, you messaged me was during that year. Uh, it was 20 net. Well, I, like everybody else, I started this podcast, uh, 2020 during the pandemic. Right. Well, yeah. So my sort of exhaustion started, I guess, about six months before the pandemic and sort of last, I, I guess it lasted, you know, like maybe eight, ten months into the pandemic. I, I was, yeah. Um, so I guess that was it. So it was just, it was general tiredness. I, I'd made this podcast series for Audible called The Last Days of August, which was about the death of a, of a porn star. Uh, and that, con I think this sort of ethical naughtiness of making that show, I, I'd say contributed to the tiredness. It was, you know, it was a very hard show to, to get kind of ethically correct, I'd say. So that, that, that had something to do with it. And so you were just burned out just across the board? Yeah, I was burned out. I was burned out. When the pandemic hit, like, no one was as happy as me. Uh, in, in for, <laughs> enforced relaxation was really what I needed. Uh, so how did you spend the pandemic? Did you, you didn't write a novel. You, you really did nothing. You didn't take up watercolors. No, I just, I took, I took like eight, eight, maybe eight months off. I, and I should say like for the first, for the first, um, for the only time in, in my life, like until then I was working seven days a week and not taking like any vacations. Like, you know, since my son was, you know, I probably haven't had a vacation since my son was 13, 14, so it was like 10 years ago. Uh, so yeah, it was making up for all of those weekends that I didn't have. I, I just like sat there, read books. Eventually the BBC got in touch and asked me if I would make a series about the culture wars, um, called, uh, so I did that. That was my pandemic project. This, this show I made called Things Fell Apart. What about you? What, how did you, well, I guess you were doing the unspeakable and, <laughs> and how was it for you? Did you feel bleak? Were you, were you happy for, for the? During the pandemic? Well, yeah. I was really burned out. I'm here to interview you, by the way. So listeners don't, don't turn off your radios because they, they hear enough about me. But, um, yeah, just quickly, I, I got really burned out 
writing my last book, I was writing a book about the culture wars, mm. the problem with everything. And it had started out... Which was an excellent book. I, I read it when it first came out. Well, thank you. It um, had many iterations. I started conceiving of it in about 2016, I'd say, early 2016. And it was supposed to be just about women's issues. It was going to be... First, it was going to be called You Are Not a Badass. It was going to be this kind of manifesto about the sort of hollowness of fourth wave feminism, online feminism and whatever. And then, and then Trump came along and the culture wars just expanded way beyond uh, kind of women's issues. And I wanted to talk about things more broadly. And then Me Too came along. Anyway, I just, it was one of these things where I was like, I kept rewriting the book. It was like for every, you know, two pages that I wrote, I had to delete five. It was just going backwards, writing back, writing in reverse, you know, writing backwards. And it was absolutely excruciating. And it still, to this day, doesn't include everything I wanted to include. And then it was, of course, received. The people, you know, it was it was well received. I don't want to overstate this, but it was certainly people were angry about it. And people who had liked me in the past decided that they didn't anymore. <laughs> all, all that kind of thing. And, um, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, that happened when Say You Been Publicly Shame came out. And as you said that, I just had this memory of I, probably the first or second talk I ever gave, gave about saying so be publicly ashamed and it was in this little comedy club in London and I told the Justine Sacco story I think for the first time ever it was before the book came out and I just wanted to try it out on a little audience uh, so I chatted out this little audience in London a place called The Invisible Dot and at the end of it like you know I just like I heard a few people just tut <laughs> like the response to me telling that story was some tuts. Really? Yeah, and I thought, oh, I'm go I've got my I've got my work cut out for me here, trying to. And were you very invested in people liking you as a person and as a writer? I invested isn't necessarily well. I don't. I, I I've certainly I don't want to be an agent provocateur. Really, I, I I'm not. That's not how I see myself. I don't see myself as a contrarian. So I suppose, yeah, I I wanted I want to write. I've always wanted to write books that people would like, so I guess in that regard, like yes, and uh, and when I've when I've um, written things that you know became like you know on the, on the few occasions I've written things that were like hand, when they were published they were like hand grenades being thrown out into the world. It was always unexpected; like I never imagined it would happen, and it was never pleasant. I remember my um, my American publisher before "Say so You've Been Publicly Shamed" came out sent me a message, I think sent me some cookies at Christmas and said something like, fasten your safety belt. Oh, they love to say that and fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. They love to say that in American publishing. That's a thing I've noticed. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I said. I said, fasten your seatbelt. 2015 is going to be a bumpy ride. And I emailed back to say like, yeah, what do you, I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, some people are going to hate your book. And I thought, no one's going to hate it. How could they? <laughs> how could they? I'm right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's how I assumed. That's how I assumed would happen when the book came out. Everyone would go, oh, yeah, well, he's right. Um, let's talk about things fell apart. This is your eight-part podcast series that uh, came out late last year. I have to say, John, it is spectacular. Anybody who thinks uh about the culture wars goes around talking about this stuff like I do and so many others really has to listen to this because it's you are 
the one person probably who has actually drilled down on the origin. Really, these are origin stories, right? Yeah, that yeah, they are. And and some of the origin stories are just extraordinary. Like, you know, so they asked me to make a, a, a series about the history of the culture wars. And the word history I really liked because I, I guess I thought if you go back to the past, you can tell human stories that don't necessarily trigger rage in people. I thought the problem with most culture war stories is that they make people angry. And if you're angry, then there's no space in your head for other things. So I wanted to tell culture war stories that wouldn't make people angry, but instead would make people intrigued or or delighted or, or, you know, sometimes angry, I guess. But I wanted anger to be one of many colours on my palette. Yeah. Uh, so, so then I thought, well, if I go back to the to the pebbles thrown in the pond, that I can maybe find just you know telling resonant stories, but stories that are unfolding human stories as opposed to ideological stories. Well, and they're gobsmacking in many cases because they're just such tiny, tiny incidents that take place in the most random circumstances, in the most random context. And they've just had these huge and very generalized implications. So you have eight parts, I think. I'd like to concentrate on three of them. I want you to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but I want to make sure we hit on at least three in particular. Okay. And there... I fear that one of the three is going to be one that I'm not going to want to talk about, but the other two... What? (laughs) Why do you say that? No, we're going to talk about... I feel... Okay. Well, the first one I think you're going to be fine with. Okay. The first one... Uh Okay. So the first one has to do with the history of the abortion debate. Right. Is that that one okay to talk about? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they're all okay. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you wrote the book. I was just a little. I was just a little anxious about. Um, I t- I'll tell you because I, I was listening to one of your episodes the other day, and and you talked a lot. You, and you know, you were talking a lot about gender stuff, and I feel as if I'm. I only really like to talk to things when I really talk about things when I like really dive into an area, and I'm not sure I've dived into. Well, that I've area dived into it. So right. you can, okay. I, will, well, the, yeah. I will share my <laughs> scuba gear with you. No, we, okay. we, we yeah, Frank Schaefer is a, is a I, Frank Schaefer is, is a wild, it's just such an incredible story. Yeah. Remarkable. Okay. So let's just take us through it because this starts in the early seventies. There's this Christian community in Switzerland called Labrie. Labrie. Which I actually yeah. had heard of, but this is remarkable. So tell us who this guy is. Okay, so it's a father and son. Uh, the father's name was Francis Schaeffer, and he was an evangelist, art historian, um, and sort of cultural critic. Looks had a sort of Willy Wonka vibe about him, and he would give these. Uh, nobody in evangelism back then was really um, addressing the unfolding world. Uh, but Francis Schaeffer was. He was giving speeches about how Christians should respond to Bob Dylan. Uh, for instance, I know for what you <laughs> like said. Oh. He has a terrible voice. That's, yeah, right. that's how I became a Christian. <laughs> yeah, like he would like that voice. Uh, or, or um, you know, or, or Woodstock. So people would come to Labrie to hear Francis Schaeffer talk. Eric Clapton would come and, other, and people on their way to like ashrams or kibbutzim. Anyway, Francis had a son called Frank, who was a teenager. He'd become a father at, I think, 17. 
Um, and he wanted to be a director. He daydreamed of making the Hollywood films. And so Francis, being like a nice, supportive dad, asked his son Frank to direct a documentary series based on his lectures about the relationship between Christianity and art history. So um, so he did, Francis did. And it's so funny uh, when you watch the series, because clearly the son Frank Schaefer was just using it as an opportunity to, uh, to, to have a showreel that he could then show to Hollywood producers. So, so for instance, to bring to light his father's dislike of Jean-Paul Sartre's theory of moral relativism, Frank directed an action sequence in which an old Parisian lady gets run down by a car. Uh, and, it was clearly, and, it's, uh, and it was clearly designed to, to uh, you know, flex Frank's creative muscles. Um, anyway, there's one scene towards the end of the series which was completely unexpected, and it was about abortion. This was, this was five years after Roe versus Wade, and Christian evangelists had no interest whatsoever in abortion. They, they yeah, did. that's amazing. Let's actually pause on this for a second, because I don't think people, a lot of people get their minds around this. So Christian, the religious community was not interested in abortion on any sort of legislative level. They were just sort of ignoring it or yeah. like it was a private matter. It was a private matter. Billy Graham was either pro-choice or ambivalent as best. Wow. Ambivalent at best, as were the editorial staff of Christian Today magazine, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. They were either, they would say, uh, you know, well, 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 are we going to tell some kids how to live their lives? Uh, I think maybe what was at the root of it was that the Roman Catholics cared a lot. Right. Uh, because, uh, because the Christian evangelists didn't like things that the Roman Catholics did. Maybe they thought, well, it's just a Roman Catholic issue. You know, let them get on with it. So there were there were pickets outside abortion clinics in the years after Roe versus Wade, but, but very small, just like a couple of Roman Catholics with their rosary beads, uh, and no one really noticed. Uh, but in evangelism, like nothing, no interest. Wow. Yeah, I know. And um, so what happened was uh, the Schaefer documentary came out. It was called uh, How Should We Then Live? And most of it was Fra Francis Schaefer just walking through Florentine museums, like bemoaning the Enlightenment uh, and every so often, you know, an old, an old Parisian lady was hit by a car to show that Jean-Paul Sartre didn't care if people were hit by cars or not. <laughs> oh, this sounds like a, the, the French New Wave a little bit. Right. This, this, is, this is the father walking around. So the son is making a film featuring his father. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because what happened was uh, his father's lectures at Brie became so popular that, uh, that a Christian TV company called Gospel Films offered him three and a half million dollars to make a a series that would then be shown in churches. And Labrie, we should say also, is it's an international community of Christians, right? It's kind of like a, it's not a commune, or maybe it sort of is. Well, the pictures that I've seen of it from the late, from the late 60s, you know, it looks pretty much like a commune. It's, it's, you know, kids on their way to India, you know, to ashrams, stopping off in Switzerland to hear Francis Schaeffer talk. Okay. and But these are educated, sort of affluent, leisure class types of people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, I mean, I'm, I'm too young to remember, but you know, that, um, the kind of kids who would go off and live in a kibbutz for six months or, you know, they're the ones who'd end up at the brig. Okay. 
Got it. Yeah. So, yeah, so Frag made this, this documentary series for his father, which had this little scene in like maybe episode seven about abortion. And Francis Schaeffer is almost apologetic. It's like I, it's, he's practically saying in the documentary, like, you know, I, I know you probably think Roe versus Wade is no big deal, uh, but, you know, can you not for a moment consider the human fetus? And then there was like a couple of shots of fetuses in the womb and, and that was it. Uh, and the documentary was released and it was a, it was a triumphant hit. It was like showed at Madison Square Garden and like at stadiums across America. Wow. But it turned out to be a massive hit except for the scene about abortion. That was like, that was like the one thing that the Christian evangelist didn't want to think about. Uh, so Frank and Francis Schaefer were getting feedback like, we love your series, just not a bit about abortion. Now, abortion just happened to be a personal bugbear for, for the son, Frank, because he was a teenage father, so it was on his mind. And he became defiant, and he convinced his father to make a second series um, and, like, give them what they really don't want to think about, like, force them to think about it. So they made a second series, this time entirely about abortion, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race?, and there's like, the, the most famous shot of it, I suppose, is shots of, they got a thousand dolls and scattered them on the Dead Sea, like a thousand dead babies baking in the salt pans. And are these, that's the name of the episode of the podcast, Is are these like high production kind of films or are they like B-movies? What do they look like? No, they're pretty, you can actually, they're actually both on YouTube so you can, you can see them. They're, no, they're pretty high production. Like Frank Schaefer was a, he directed them well. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's got a, uh, the second series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, is, is more avant-garde than the first series. Frank was a big fan of Goddard and... Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so he wanted to put, so, so in the second series, he's got like melancholy children sort of wandering the earth dressed like mine, like French mines. Like these, like ghostly <laughs> children. I presume so that sounds like a horror film. Okay. Yeah. So there's like stuff like that happening in the second series, and and the dolls scattered in the Dead Sea, and and so on. Anyway, they released it, but the same stadiums as first time around, and this time no one came at Madison Square Garden. Frank Toby, they sold half of the front row. And nothing else. And why, sorry, I just want to understand this. Why are these kinds of films playing in big stadiums? Is it because these are Christian events? I mean, these are not like, these are not like film festival programming kinds of things. No, they're Christian events. And how, in, and how interesting that, um, I mean, I remember actually I was making one of my first documentaries was called uh, Tottenham Ayatollah, which was about um, militant Islamists in London in the mid-90s. And actually I remember like they booked a stadium at one point and the night before, at a huge stadium in London, and the night before was a show at the stadium called The Wonderful World of Horses. So you've got like, so just at the stadium in London, one night's The Wonderful World of Horses. And then the next night, is, uh, um, you know, militant Islamist Osama bin Laden sending a <laughs> video message. So I guess the same things happen at Madison Square Garden. Like, you know, we notice, you know, when the killers and 
Bruce Springsteen are playing. But what we don't know is the shows between, which are all like Yeah, I got they gotta fill the it's gotta have bookings. Okay. All right. So this so okay, so they don't even sell out the part of half of the first row? According to Frank, I don't know whether he was exaggerating or not, but that's what he that's what he told me. I mean there's nothing more dispiriting than booking a stadium and no one comes. So they were they were in trouble, Frank and Francis. And they, they des- you know, I, 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 it could have like, destroyed their livelihood, this expensive documentary that nobody was coming to see. Uh, so they went around, they went to Billy Graham and they went to Christianity Today and they went to the Southern Baptist Convention and they were like, you know, you put us on the cover of your magazine when we came out with our last series. Um, you know, why, why, why won't you cover this new one? And they said, you know, because we're not interested in abortion. It's a Roman Catholic issue. Uh, <laughs> So what happened, what saved them was, I think it was the New York Post ran a piece about this strange avant-garde anti-abortion film. And as a result, um, Planned Parenthood picketed outside Madison Square Garden. And now the evangelists were like thrilled because they may not have been anti-abortion, but they were against all the other things that feminists were, were in favour of, like, you know, bra burning or whatever. So the evangelists were then turning up to pick it, to, to yell at the Planned Parenthood. And it was there outside the Schaefer film screenings that the Christian evangelist anti-abortion militant movement began. Wow. Okay, that is an incredibly compelling story. And I think about it routinely. Is that really the whole story? I mean, for the purposes of your storytelling, it is all the story we need. But like, how do you sort of put this into a larger sort of world? Sure. So, uh, and obviously, once we when we delivered the show to the BBC, they said they said very much the same thing. Like, like, are you sure? Like, is this not? You know, what an amazing story this is. But is this like a convenient story for someone like you to tell? Uh, All I can say is that, uh, okay, so what, there's only one part of the story that isn't provable, like externally provable, and that's the moment when Frank goes to his father and says, you know, I want you to make a second series, this time entirely about abortion. Frank convincing his reluctant father to do it. That's the only part of the story that, that isn't provable by, by outside evidence. So, so, so I think the story is too. So then the second question is, well, would Christian evangelists have um, become, you know, anti-choice eventually, even if the Schaefers had never existed? And the answer to that is, is possibly yes. Like the, the uh, probably yes. Uh, So the conduit between um, the Schaefers and the rest of the world was Jerry Falwell. And Jerry Falwell once said that if it wasn't for Frank Schaefer, he would never have left Lynchburg, Virginia. He would have been a pastor that nobody had ever heard of. Uh, But it was Frank Schaefer who, and and of course, Frank Schaefer's sons arresting visual images that he put in there just to show Hollywood producers. Um, Jerry Falwell didn't add that part. That's my digression. Uh, that convinced him to put on the gloves and get in the ring. So Jerry Falwell said that Francis Schaeffer radicalised him. Uh, now, would Jerry Falwell have got radicalised anyway and realised that abortion would be like a like a good wedge issue anyway? Like, probably. But that is the way that history unfolded. 
Yeah. I think that people are often surprised that there was a time in pretty recent history where abortion was not especially politicized. I had Frances Kissling on the show uh, a couple of months ago, and she's a legendary abortion rights activist. She's now in her late 70s. And she talked about working in abortion clinics in New York pre-Roe v. Wade, when it was legal in a couple of states, including New York. And she said there wasn't really much picketing. I mean, it, it wasn't an issue. It was, you know, people had to kind of, it was hard to get there and it wasn't a small deal. But this sort of um, extreme politi- politicization is a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, to think that Roe v. Wade was going for five years before the Schaefer's documentary came out, and it probably took a year or two after that for full world to... Yeah. Yeah. So there was a good six or seven years when Christian evangelists were just letting abortion go on without them even thinking about it. Now, what does that mean? But what does that story mean? Does it, does it mean that they were just, does it mean that they were like manipulated by, you know, unexpected powerful forces to believe in something that they, that they wouldn't otherwise have believed in? Yeah, I was trying to think about examples of like movies or sort of movies of the week that had that kind of impact. I, I remember the morning after, remember the movie about nuclear war? Oh, yeah. It was in the 80s. And I wonder if that's analogous. Like it just had this enormous influence on people and their feelings about nukes. Yeah, yeah. Must have. We didn't really have the morning after in Britain. We had threads. I think. Oh, and Raymond Briggs's When the Wind Blows, where the sweetest old couple die of radiation poisoning slowly in the months after a nuclear attack. That was the one that stayed with me. Same guy, same guy did The Snowman. You know how the snowman melts at the end of The Snowman? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so. Yeah, so, because, yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine now because we have so much content and there's just so so much media. But at the time, there was limited, the you know, people's, the bandwidth was smaller. So if something was out there in the world, people could see it. But so what's amazing in this episode is you go beyond this initial setup and talk about the repercussions of the uh, abortion wars. And you talk about the abortion doctors who were killed. And tell us a little bit more about that, because then Frank has some has some things to say in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bart is a, an, an abortion doctor in Buffalo. Yeah, it was Buffalo, New York. Was killed by a massive fan of the Schaefer's. This kid, this called James Cop, who went to Labrie, you know, to hear Francis Schaefer talk, and then went to Buffalo some years later and, and murdered uh, an abortion doctor, Bart Slepian. And Bart's niece, Amanda, who I spoke to, you know, very much blames the Schaefer's, the death of her, her uncle, you know, and their weird obsessions. And yeah, of course, Frank is deeply remorseful about the whole thing. And is just very apologetic, is now very pro-choice, has dedicated his life to try to redress, redress the harm that he did, you know, with his father in the, in the 60s and 70s. And what does that mean? He's dedicated to his life. What does he do? Uh, he goes on CNN sometimes. <laughs> sometimes he also yells at people on Twitter. Does a lot. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, so that's legit. That's you know, time. Time well spent. That that's reparations. Uh, high quality. Right. But you know, I, his obviously his remorse is is genuine, and I, I'm not sure that yelling at people on Twitter is going to 
uh, and do any damage. So what surprised you most about this particular segment? I suppose one of the things that, that, that I ended with with that story is that I, I then tracked down the films because he did, after all of this happened, Frank did go to Hollywood and he did have a career. He made four films of wildly differing genres. Uh, he, he made a screwball mafia comedy called Baby on Board about a mafia baby that's left at the back of a taxi cab. And then he's, he made a couple of post-apocalyptic kind of Mad Max type dramas I mean, when you when you make films of that of of that differing genres, I guess it's indicative that things aren't working out that well for you in Hollywood. And uh, in the end, you know, I think Frank could be the first to admit that you know his ambition led to these four, you know, these four movies that were, you know, I mean, getting any movie made is hard enough. But I, you know, so he should take some pride in in that. But maybe we should sometimes, you know, like check our ambitions and think, you know, is our ambition too powerful and there's too much collateral damage. But it's so hard to know that in advance. I mean, that's the nature of unintended consequences. They're unintended. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I, I sometimes feel grumpy. People have to remind me that that consequence was unintended. Yeah. Okay, so I want to move on to an episode that I think is my my favorite. It definitely is the one that stayed with me the most. And it's a subject that I actually think about a lot. And I, I wrote about it in, um, in The Problem with, with Everything. And that is the what's sometimes called the satanic preschool panic. Mm. Um, this is a, a sort of episode in history that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. I was... You know, it happened in the 80s, so I think a lot of millennials just, just kind of skipped over it. They weren't quite old enough to remember it. I remember this kind of thing being on the cover of Time magazine. I was on the cover of Ms. magazine, this notion that all these kids in daycares and preschools across the country were being subjected to satanic torture at the hands of their caregivers. And there's a kind of socioeconomic political context for this. But so why don't you you start by... Well, first of all, tell me, did you know about this story before you started looking into it? Yeah, I knew vaguely about the satanic panic. Like there was there was a case in Britain too, I think up in, in the north of Scotland, where you know, where a similar thing happened and it turned out to be a false allegation. Uh, so I knew I knew a little bit about it. But before I tell the story, can I ask you, like you said it was on the cover of Miss Magazine. What was Miss Magazine's take? Were they skeptical? Did they believe? No, no, they were. It was unbelievable because, oh, you know what? I'm conflating two things because there was the satanic panic, but this was also going around along the same time as the recovered memory movement, which these dovetail, right? So there was this movement where psychologists, therapists were extracting false memories from mostly women, mostly having to do with sexual abuse. So there were a lot of women suddenly saying that their fathers had molested them as children, but they had blocked it out. And this in the psychological community was considered this kind of new diagnosis that or that needed to be recognized. And so I believe the cover of Ms. Magazine had a recovered, recovered memory syndrome on, on the cover and legitimizing it as this this was a feminist issue and this was something that we needed to now be aware of that women had been molested uh, in all kinds of ways for generations but but blocked it out so yeah yeah that a lot of that came from this book uh, the courage to heal uh, by Laura Davis and Ellen Bass have you have you ever read it I've heard of it yeah yeah I, I went to visit I, I read it and I actually went to visit them in Santa Cruz. 
and it didn't go well. They kicked me out of their house. Uh, yeah. Really? Yes. When I started asking them about that stuff, about when it, when it went wrong, because there's lines in that book, like, you know, if you, if you feel you were abused, uh, then you were. So I, I think if you think, if you feel you were abused and your life shows symptoms or something, then you were, but, but it was this idea that, you know, if you, if you think it happens, then it happened. And this was what year? When were they saying this? The 80s? Yeah, I think Coach to Hill was early, early 80s. I can't remember exactly, but maybe 82 to 84. Like. And when did you go back and interview them? Was it for this project or for something else? No, it was something else. I was actually driving past their town. And so I, I, I thought I should just go and see them and see what happens. <laughs> Just happened to be, I happened to be in the neighborhood, so I thought I'd ask you about this. Oh, yeah, about the time that your book caused innocent people to go to jail. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't go well. Uh, I felt bad actually about about ambushing them. I don't, I, I don't think I've ever ambushed anyone since. Yeah, so it gets fair. You need to give people time. You know, you, I just don't think it's fair. Wow. Okay. So the reason why I don't think it's fair is that certain personalities, certain people, don't handle. You know, don't aren't good in those adversarial situations, and I think it's unfair to be knee-jerk adversarial with people because it's it's like a false way of judging someone. Like if if you're very good in that situation and you handle adversarial questions really well, then you score points. But if you're very bad at it, then people think you're an idiot. But but it's really it's to do with how somebody. It's like it's like judging somebody by their standing in a room and you go up to them and you scream in their ear. Like, I, don't, I think that's like a random way of, you know, and then how well they respond to that is what you judge them. I, I don't think that's like a rational way of responding, of, of, of judging somebody. It's like when you go to prison, like, you know, you go to prison and then if you don't beat someone out first, then, you know, they'll beat you up. You don't want to be a fuck boy. That's what a prisoner once, that's what a former prisoner once told me. Like, the last thing you want to be is a fuck boy. And I'm not sure that that should be the way we judge you know, everyone in most circumstances. Okay, that's fair enough. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, okay, but speaking of going to prison, you speak with Kelly Michaels, who was a daycare center worker in New Jersey in the 1980s, who went through a seven-year investigation, I think a 30-month trial over just absolutely outlandish allegations from very small children. And this was part of a, a larger trend that was going on in the culture. So explain what this was about. Right. So it starts on, on like Christian radio. You have these Christian shock jocks and people are phoning in and saying, you know, I, I was sacrificed. Oh, no, I was, I was taken to a sacrifice and, and I was passed through a, through a gutted horse. That was one of the things that came up. At the like people are calling in and say, I wasn't a big, I love talk radio, but I wasn't listening to a lot of Christian radio. Was this the, a normal thing people would be calling in and saying? Yeah, I think to certain presenters who were, you know, you know, who were kind of soliciting for those kinds of stories. Okay, okay. So people would say, yeah, I was kidnapped and taken to a house down the street and there was a dead horse in there. And they passed me through the horse from, I think, head, from I think, mouth to anus. And that was the ritual uh, so, so that's how it started on Christian radio, but then it moved on to like CNN, 
you know, Larry King was doing specials, Gerardo Rivera was doing specials. And these weren't specials that were being sceptical of these claims. These were specials that were saying, well, maybe these claims are true. And these were adults. So let's just be clear. So when Larry King was talking about adults having these experiences, or how quickly did it become about children? Uh, Yeah, I think this was adults at this time. If I remember seeing those shows, yeah, Geraldo, these, these are adults. Uh, but that then entered the culture, this idea that Satanists were not only kidnapping your children uh, and, you know, taking them down the street for these rituals, but also they were infecting us through the culture, through films and music and videos and so on. So, you know, Judas Priest and all these other bands got brought into it. And, and, and so these things were like filtering through the culture. And then the McMartin preschool trial happened in California, which was like the big one, right? Where, uh, and then there were copycat McMartin allegations, and that's what happened to Kelly Michaels. So Kelly, I don't know, maybe you know, I, I don't know what kind of socioeconomic situation the McMartin preschool was in, whether it was in a working class part of... I think it was in... Uh... I'll need to check this. I think it was in Orange County. I think it was relatively affluent. I mean, certainly the, the Kelly Michaels, the We Care Day Care Center was in Maplewood, New Jersey, which was an affluent suburb. Exactly. Yeah, which I found surprising. I think from, from maybe we'll talk about this in a second. So, uh, yeah, so Kelly's this lovely, funny, you know, early 20s, you know, woman. She wants to eventually move to New York to make it in the creative professions. But right now she's the other side of the Hudson River in Maplewood as a daycare worker. And she's there for like a year and a half. And the way it started was a kid, one of the kids was being, um, was was sick and went to the doctors and the doctor gave this kid a rectal um, uh, thermometer. And the kid said, oh, my teacher does that, Kelly. And Kelly did give, take the kids' temperatures, but never rectally. And in fact, in the end, she was cleared of that particular charge. But, but, the, mo- but the mother uh, became convinced that, uh, that what her child meant was like some sort of rectal exam. So that's how it started. And by the end of it, I think, you know, I can't remember the exact percentage, but like 50 or more percent of the parents were convinced that Kelly had abused their kids in these like and, like, and with all of these daycare things, you know, the stories made no sense. Like she was forcing the kids to like roll around naked and uh, jam and, and, and safety pins and razor blades. And then she was playing jingle bells in the nude and they were forced, being forced to listen to her playing jingle bells in the nude. This was at a daycare centre at a church where people were going in and out like all the time. Uh, and similarly, I think at the McMartin case, the kids were saying that they were taken to cemeteries and, um, and the teachers were like forcing them to dig up corpses and hack up the corpses. And they still got back in time for pickup uh, without a mark on them. So, so the stories made like no sense. You know, par- um, kids having to watch a daycare teacher put a bomb in a hamster and explode it in front of the class. That, that was another one. So I'm mean, an extraordinary then that she was investigated for years and found guilty and sentenced to, I can't remember, decades in jail. I th- 47 years was her sentence. And was she the only employee accused of any of this? The other people who worked there were not involved, ostensibly? Yeah, to, to, 
to my knowledge, it was just it was just Kelly. So okay, so I mean, this is an example of a concept creep. It is putting it mildly. Like, how did this get started? Um, th- that one mother with the rectal examination, and then oh, there were um, yeah, they brought in experts, and and the experts would interview the kids, and the one of the experts said in court that the fact that the kids seemed so unharmed uh, was evidence that they were the most harmed kids that she had ever encountered. And the police were convincing the parents, because these daycares had just opened, like daycares were new in the 80s in America. Yes. So a lot of these, you know, these parents were like dropping their kids off at daycare and then going to work for the first time, newly working mothers, evidently feeling, you know, guilty and, you know, ashamed that they were abandoning their kids to the daycare and then going off to work. So they already had some, you know, I think anybody who's ever dropped a kid off at daycare, you know, leaves feeling a little bit bad about it. And I mean, I certainly did in the years I sent my son, you know, to daycare. And then these police officers were coming along and saying, well, you missed the signs of abuse. You must have been too busy at work (sighs) and you missed the signs of abuse. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered why BetterHelp sponsors so many podcasts, especially the really smart ones like this? Maybe because we like to think about problems, problems of the world, as well as our own personal problems. But it's easy to just analyze endlessly rather than taking steps to actually solve things. And when you're ready to take that step, a good therapist can really help. Now, if you listen to this show a lot, you've probably heard me talking about my own struggles these last couple of years. Struggles with creativity, with getting older, with losing my mind over do-it-yourself audio engineering. I could probably use some therapy. Some of my listeners have gently suggested as much. But honestly, I can't imagine fitting therapy into my life right now. And that's why BetterHelp is such an innovative and valuable tool. It's private counseling from licensed therapists that you connect with online. You fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist that you can meet with over video, on the phone, or even in an online chat. You don't even have to turn your camera on if you don't want to. It's all confidential. You can switch therapists at any time. And needless to say, it's much more affordable than regular therapy. When you want to become a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash unspeakable today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. And now back to the conversation. The McMartin case, and yeah, just to clarify, that was in Manhattan Beach, California, which is not in Orange County, but it's in a very affluent part of the, the South Bay in, in Los Angeles County. My recollection of that was that it started with one parent, a mother who was making these accusations, and then it just caught on fire from there. Then the other parents said, oh, well, maybe she's onto something and she's right. And I'm noticing strange things in my kids. And then it later came out that that mother was, had serious mental health issues, was like, yes, you know, hearing voices and, you know. The thing that's so extraordinary and the reason why I mentioned why I kind of asked if you could remember where, the, where that place was um, based was they were both affluent areas. And, you know, you kind of associate... When I started making my satanic panic episode of Things Fell Apart, I assumed that the modern day parallel would be QAnon, um, you know, because there are clearly such parallels between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously you associate QAnon with people living in rural areas, 
and, and so on. So, but no, in both cases, it was liberals. It, well, certainly in, in the Kelly Michaels case, it was progressives, it was liberals, it was, it was people who were commuting into New York City, lawyers, accountants. They were the people who became convinced. And so I realized while making that show that the modern day parallel isn't really QAnon. It's, it's the way we all behave on, on Twitter, uh, jumping to conclusions. Uh, without without any of the evidence, defining people by a little slither of their personality. And anyway, I put this to Kelly and she agreed. It's like you can be the wisest, most progressive, most rational, critical thinking person in the world, but you can still fall for this shit. And, and they did. And they were the ones who had us sent to prison. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's obvious. And I've, I've talked about this. Uh, you know, I don't think it was any accident that white middle class, upper middle class mothers started going to work around that time. And then these daycare centers emerged and there was it was behooved some kind of social force to tell women that, oh, yeah, no, not so fast. No, you don't. Don't go to don't <laughs> go to work because look, this is what's going to happen. I mean, that kind of makes sense on a zeitgeist level. But this particular phenomenon of absolutely outlandish Twilight Zone level uh, fictions taking hold among otherwise extremely logical, rational, educated, thoughtful people, that is something that I'm fixated with. Just in the in this moment in the culture and to see how it went down back then is remarkable yeah and i agree with you but I, you know i'd say it happens like every day in, in in different ways on certainly on social media oh yeah yeah exactly right i mean look at look at justin sacco i mean there we were defining somebody by just you know the, the tiniest thinnest sliver of information about a person but while she was asleep on a plane everybody just decided that they knew everything about her and that was I guess the same thing about Kelly Michaels in its way uh everybody just decided they knew do you think that's too much of a stretch well but that's but Justine Sacco was an adult and she said something there was a moral uh implication there like she made a joke that uh, I mean, it was an anti-racist joke, but it was uh, it was the kind of joke Sarah Silverman used to make. <laughs> I think it's like yeah, or, right, or Randy Newman. Oh, or, t- you know, exactly. South Randy Park. Newman's composed entire uh, records. Uh, I think uh, what's the uh, good old boys? That entire uh, record is like a big one. Justine Sacco joke. <laughs> <laughs> right, as is as is this great Roger Newman song called "My Life Is Good." Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So that's what I thought was as I lay in bed looking at Justin Sacco's tweet that night. And I guess for people who don't know, I should say what the tweet was, which was going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And, and as I lay in bed <laughs> watching that, I mean, it's it an t- evergreen. But my first, right, my first thought was, you know, wow, somebody's fucked. And I kind of put the pillow behind my head and just you know, waited to see what would happen next. But it only took me about two minutes then to think. I think this is like a poor version of like a Randy, you know, like a Randy Newman song, uh, like a poor, like a not very good example of an honourable liberal comedic tradition. So that was how I that was how I watched it unfold, and and just felt more and more. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. I want to come back to that because I do think like it's. I'm really interested in the way like a, a Randy Newman song has a particular audience, and he knows that that audience is going to know where he's coming from, as opposed to a, a tweet from a stranger. But I just let's put hang on to that for a second. But I want to go back. So, but we've got these these kids are somehow being led on 
their imaginations are being stimulated in such a way that these incredible tales are being created and then adults are running away with it. And, you know, what we know from these stories is that this profoundly changed the way that children were interrogated and questioned in criminal investigations like this. So this was really, this was a groundbreaking kind of period in criminal history. But I'm just, I still don't understand why adults would go along with this because we believe the children became the cri de corps here and uh, of this time that's i think is that the name of the of the episode here I, uh what was the episode or it's in any case that's that's the that's the phrase that this this little episode in history believe the children be, believe the children believe, yeah i mean it was hash, hashtag that's, that's believe believe all children <laughs> right <is> yeah like, <laughs> Well, I mean, okay, so, well, here's, you know, here's something that I think your heterodox listeners will be happy about. So the reason why Kelly ended up getting let out eventually was that a writer, um, uh, Dorothy Rabinowitz. Dorothy Rabinowitz. Yeah. So she was writing for Harper's, Harper's. Mm -hmm. I think. And so she went into Harper's. And she said, look, has anybody, has anybody seen this Kelly Michaels story? Like, you know, this is nuts. Like, she's, you know, I, she seems innocent to me. And she said, like, all the younger staff at Harper's were, like, outraged by what Dorothy Rabinowitz was saying. Like, they, they were horrified by that. And it was their horror um, that made her all the more keen to, to investigate the story. So, and this would have been, what, in the 90s? I, no, I think it's still, I think it's probably still the late 80s, because she was in jail for about four, approximately four years, I think. So I think probably, oh, no, you know what? I think she was in for two years. I think she was. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've forgotten. It's been a year since I've put that show together. You know what it's like to be a journalist. You you become like a world. That's okay. I just listened to it yesterday, so that's okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, right. So yeah, so it could have been either late 80s or early 90s. Okay. But, but it's like, do you have any, I know you're not a psychologist, but what do you think it is about people's minds that lead them or even want them to believe completely outrageous things coming from unreliable sources? Is it is it comforting somehow? Is it stimulating? Are people, do people have their own trauma and that they're somehow projecting their own childhood trauma onto these other stories? I mean, all of those things sound plausible. Um, there's definitely comfort. I mean, we've all felt the comfort of, of the echo chamber on social media. You know, we all like it when like-minded people praise us, which is why the worst kind of shaming is a shaming that comes from your own group too. Right. Yeah, for, for the same reason. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of social there's been a lot of social scientists who've studied over the years the relationship between morality and violence. That if you're convinced that you have morality on your side, then you can then you become dizzier and more and and the violence that you commit can can be more ferocious. So there's a relationship between morality and violence. But but I think I don't know how how important that last thing is because I think most acts of violence. People think they're doing it in, in the cause of, of morality. But yeah, believe the children, you know, a new... You can imagine that the parents dropping their kids off at daycare, feeling bad about it, then being told by the police that they missed the signs. They were asleep. You were asleep. You were too busy with your work. You were asleep. They were asleep and now they're awake. Maybe they felt 
like like we have to really compensate for our years of being asleep. Wow. Uh, and I suppose you, you see that, right? I mean, you saw that a little bit after George Floyd, that people felt very ashamed that they, that they missed. Well, it's tapping into guilt. Yeah, yeah. And that's a powerful thing. So they wanted, so, you know, maybe some people overcompensated. So uh, maybe that was going on too, some overcompensation. Do we know what happened to those kids? Are they now traumatized from having been through this experience? All I can tell you is that, you know, I asked Kelly how many of the parents after she was exonerated, you know, apologized to her. And I guess everybody can guess the answer. Uh, and the answer is like zero. You know, the cognitive dissonance would have been just too strong and they just disappeared into life, all the accusers. Wow. Wow. And it was hundreds of kids, right? How many were caught up in this? It was a, it was a lot. I think it was, from memory, it was like tens of kids. Okay. Yeah, you I know, guess there wouldn't the be heart. hundreds of kids in a daycare. But I mean, it wasn't three. It was yeah. It was in the double digits. Yes. Many times over. And Kelly Michaels now has a bunch of kids herself. I mean, she's a, she's a relatively, she's middle-aged woman. She's doing pretty well. Um, what is her life like? She described herself as like, you know, like a church lady. Just to, She said, I'm just a church lady. And then, you know, I could... Ironically, she was working in a church. This whole thing started in a church basement, see? Yeah, yeah. And she says, you know, she, she said that it's just it's so heartbreaking because, you know, she's at a party and you know, she said, when it comes up, people just look at her like, you were in prison? For what? And like abusing children? And, you know, you know, she was tearing up as she was telling me this because it's just so unfair, but it's a part of her life. And, and it comes up and people are just astonished because she's just like a, you know, a church lady. People get really really, really irrational when it comes to anything having to do with children. I mean, this is a separate conversation. I don't want to go too far down this, but something like Pizzagate, a lot of the QAnon stuff. I mean, I know you said you thought that that was a, a parallel. It just seems like if there's any inkling of abuse to children, people absolutely lose any sense of logic or uh, first first principles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I, I did. I, I, I've done a bunch of stories about Alex Jones over the years, and I've oft, often tried to get to the bottom of you know why Alex, um, you know, was so fixated on, on pedophilia. Is it because he was abused himself? I don't know much about his story. Yeah, no, I, I no, he he, he wasn't, and in fact, um, or to my knowledge, I, I, no, I really think he wasn't. I mean, this is a whole different story. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't go down this road, but, you know, a story about Alex in, in high school. I, I took you off on a, on a bad... No, I took you off on it. But actually, well, you know what I'm thinking? I mean, we won't go down too far this road, but I don't know how much you looked into the Westboro Baptist Church, for instance. Uh, well, I know, I know Megan Phelps pretty well. We're, we're friends. Yeah. So I've done a few things with her and I've talked to her and I read her book and I, and I talked to her a few times. I, I loved her book. And one of the things, so this was the, this is the very small church that would picket funerals of military, you know, of, of dead soldiers holding signs that say God hates fags. I mean, it was this completely incoherent thing. Like they basically, they, and it, it, was a, it was a family. It was a church that was a, essentially one family. It was led by Fred Phelps, who was just this vehement uh, homophobe. And reading Megan's memoir, I was absolutely stunned by the moment where she says that she thinks that there was some evidence that her grandfather, Fred Phelps, had been 
uh, molested as a child himself um, by a man. And it's like, well, okay, that <laughs> there you go. Um, and whether or not that's true, I don't know the details of that, but it just seems like that I wonder how often that is the cause of like so much of this, so much of what we see people acting out. Yes, I, I've tried to engage Alex Jones, you know, as one of the you know main voices, you know, behind that whole you know Pizzagate thing. I, I tried to engage Alex a few times about that, and and he says, you know, that he has this sort of particular obsession with children being hurt. But I but I want I don't know. I, I think with Alex, his particular obsession is is himself. Yeah. Yeah, he might be a, another case. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we'll move off of Alex Jones and get into the thing that you're afraid to talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is going to be episode six, right? The etymology of the word to Episode six of this interview with you and me. This is how long it's going to go on. Now, um, <laughs> this is the... <laughs> Uh, I don't think you should be, all right, I'm very curious what you're nervous about because I actually, I think you, you take this on in a way that from an angle that is surprising and I think effective. Okay. So the, oh, good. the conceit of this, uh, segment is the evolution of the term turf. Is that, well, how would you, what is this? This is the feminism segment. Okay. So how would you like define what this one is about? Just generally. Well, well, I should, can I do some caveating first? Uh, Please, caveat, caveat away. Okay, so when the BBC asked me to um, do something about, you know, to make a series about the history of the culture wars, it was kind of obvious that they would want me to, you know, especially in Britain, which is, as you know, become known as Turf Island, uh, they, they would want me to, to do something about, about that particular um, schism. Uh, and I didn't, I, you know, I was, I didn't want, it was like the last episode we made. I didn't want to do it. It's so noisy. The arguments are often, you know, um, made with such bad faith on, on, you know, every side of it. It's like, well, you know, so I just, you know, even now I just didn't want to, you know, but I knew I had to do it, but I didn't really want to do it. So, so my overriding thing was, I, I want this to be quiet. Like, I want the whole series to be quiet, but I want this to be quiet. And I, and I do think, you know, for something about the, the, the schism between gender-critical feminists and, and trans rights, and also the schism between second and third wave feminism, like, the show got remarkably few criticisms. So I, so I think I did manage to make it quite quiet. But, but yeah, so that's the backstory. Um, I, so, okay, so when they wanted... When they wanted um, me to do something about the kind of origin story of trans wars, I, I suppose that's something that's always kind of interested me. Like, and, and it's not something I know very much about, by the way. I think you know a lot more about it than I do. But when, when second wave <laughs> feminism, yeah, right. But when when the second wave morphed into the third wave, I thought that's an interesting kind of interesting moment in history. And, that, and you talked to Rebecca Walker, who coined the term third wave. Yes, and, and I really enjoyed that that part of the show. I, I thought that Rebecca Walker was really interesting, you know, such a unique set of experiences and so on. And, and But yeah, but then that then segued into the etymology of the word turf, which was about this moment that happened at a music festival, Mitchfest, um, so you must have known about Mitchfest. Like this is how. Lit yeah, well, it used to be the Michigan Women's Women's with a Y Music Festival. Okay, so a trans woman named Nancy. Can you remember? 
Nancy, thank you, Bill Calder. The thing about being a journalist is like when you're in the middle of doing a story, you're a world expert. Oh, yeah, no, it's all, I don't remember anything I wrote. But I I listened to I listened to this uh, when it first came out, and then I listened to, I re-listened to it over the last few days because I knew we were talking. So yeah, I have an unfair advantage. Yeah, so Nazi went to um, to Mitchfest and had a great time, and at a women only festival, and then went back the following year. And the following year, uh, she's a Nancy was post op trans person, and you know a couple of women went up to her and said, you know, are you are you trans and Nancy said, it's none of your business, you know, I'm a woman. And, and they said, you have to leave and you have to leave now. So, so you know, you can imagine that was very, like, humiliating and upsetting. And, and then the next year, Nancy and a friend started this annex called Camp, Camp Trans. And, you know, there were some moments, I think, when, when unity occurred between Mitchfest and Camp Trans. Like, you know, I think they were invited in at one point to, to give a talk and... And that was it. And then, and then years later, an Australian journalist was trying to write about Mitchfest. Uh, there was a lot of controversy. People said, oh, they're transphobes at Mitchfest. And so, so this reporter tried to come up with a word that was less, you know, um, incendiary. Trying to come up with a word that was like factual and not incendiary to describe what happened at Mitchfest. And so she came up with the term trans-exclusionary radical feminist. <laughs> Much less incendiary. Well done. Right. Well, I, well, I guess at the time, I, know. I don't know. <laughs> I know. But yeah. Okay. Mm. So okay. that's the story. So, so that's, you could probably tell, like I told that story with a little bit less, with slightly less enthusiasm than I told the other two stories, the Satanic Panic and the Frank Schaefer story. Mainly because I just, I don't know, I felt myself completely immersed in those stories. In this story, I always felt like I had to be a little, you know, tiptoe, but tenterhooks. So many people were just waiting to get angry with my take. And so... So, I mean, this is a topic that at this point is effectively impossible to get right. My uh, attitude at this point is I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about it the way I want because I'm going to hate everyone's going to hate me anyway but I I but the thing is you don't re- you're telling a particular story I don't think the contract that you're making with the listener is that I'm going to tell you every single thing about this issue yeah and I'm going to tell you why trans activism is right or why gender critical activism is right like that wasn't the purpose of things fell apart the, the purpose of that show was to tell you know complicated, nuanced, unfolding human stories, not ideological stories. Right. Yeah. So so fortunately, like because I came to that show with that attitude and, and because it was episode six and people had heard the first five, the show passed pretty much without incident. Uh, thank God. This is the last episode. So it's six parts then. Oh, no, this, no, no, no. There's two more parts after that. Oh, there is eight parts. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Episode seven was about Isaac Cappy, about a QAnon uh, a, a sort of thought leader who died. And, uh, and yeah, episode eight was, was, was about the school book wars. Right. Speaking of the school book wars, by the way, while we were talking, I got an email saying that, so you've been publicly shamed is, is on another list of banned books now, along with from from all of Texas's school district, from what I can tell. Uh, I, Way to change the subject. Oh, no, we can nice go back job. to that. Yeah. Good pivot. I don't go believe you. Oh, look what just came over across my email. No, I'm kidding. Wow, really? <laughs> that th- Yeah. 
they happened about an hour ago. Wow. We were talking. So that's so you're um, that you're an esteemed company. You're being banned in Texas. That's that's all. Yeah, that's with, good. along with along with the Bible. Uh, and uh, the Bible's been banned and the Diary of Anne Frank, the uh, graphic edition. Uh, now, I think by when they say the graphic edition, I don't think they mean that they're, they're, they're more graphic. <laughs> like, like, right, like this is really, these can, contain some graphic scenes uh, of, of, right, of uh, Anne Frank in the attic. Well, the, the graphic sort of novel, the, the, ill, gra- the graphic yeah. memoir. But wait, why would they ban the Bible? Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. So you've been publicly shamed as a passing reference to bestiality, and so has the Bible. So maybe, uh, maybe that's maybe that's. Oh the my gosh! Wow. Well, but I don't know. I got literally. I got. I got an email at the beginning of our conversation, and and I haven't properly read it yet. All right. Well, you're you're. Feel free to read it out loud here here on the uh, if there's anything juicy uh, in there. Um, oh, uh, <laughs> I can find it if you like. But, uh, uh, but yeah, but but I want to. But I'm curious to know, like, because you're much more immersed in the whole gender critical argument than mm-hmm. I am. Like, I'm obviously I'm really curious to know, like, what you thought when you thought it was a good jumping off point. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I can see why people were frustrated that you weren't really getting at the thing that I think drives people like me so crazy, or I should say, makes us so so riveted by it, which is the way to me it overlaps with the satanic preschool thing. I mean, it is a kind of mind contagion and a concept creep and a, a, a kind of agreed upon set of fictions that has taken hold in elite educated circles. So you saw that you saw it in a small scale with satanic preschool, and now you're seeing it in things like youth gender transition you know, extreme rises of kids saying that they are, that they're transgender. Now, that is a different thing than what you're talking about in this story. You're not talking about kids and gender in this story at all. Well, by the time we got got to that, to making that episode, we'd pretty much set a rule for ourselves for the whole series that it was about origin stories. Yeah. It was about, it was about the purple. So, so yeah, that would have been a sort of slightly odd one to do. Uh, But I would say I was listening to one of your episodes the other day and you were talking about social contagion and and in fact you know I had a conversation with Katie Herzog about social contagion too and and it did surprise me um that the idea that there's some people out there I'm sure people on the kind of extreme end of things who who want to say that social contagion doesn't exist because that's that's (laughs) how can you say that right yeah so so and so that yeah so that, that was I mean, right. Me. I, the thing with the trans issue, it's about so many different things. See, there's there's the part of the reason there's so many bad faith arguments on all different sides is that there are so many different moving pieces and there's stuff that's not understood and there's data that really just hasn't been gathered. And so it's very, very difficult to get it right. I mean, the only real honest approach to it, I think, is to say we just really don't know. It's a whole bunch of things. It's like uh, Lisa Sullen Davis says, who I has, you know, she reports on this just brilliantly. She says it's one big giant mess. So but that that aside, you are telling a particular story of a particular famous women's space, Mishfest, and how one trans woman, Nancy, she had a particular experience there. And actually, I thought that you made a point in an incredibly subtle uh, way you you might not even 
well, you probably are, but possibly you're not aware, as aware of the impact of this as you might be. So what happens basically, Nancy, she's like middle-aged, right? She transitioned when she was 28. So I don't know how old she is in the story. I think quite. I think you're quite a lot older. Quite a lot older. And she was. She was post op. You know, she had had full surgery. She wasn't um, in the situation where a, a lot of trans people now the accepted. If you say that you are a certain gender, you are that gender. You don't need to have medicalized. You don't need to even have be be taking medication, let alone have surgery. So, but we're talking about a time. She's like an old school transsexual. You know, she might have even called herself a trans. Uh, you, transgender people of a certain generation tend to call themselves transsexuals. Someone like Debbie Hayden will call herself that or Buck Angel. Okay, so she gets asked to leave this festival. She's really sad about it. The vast majority of the participants want her to be there. It's only a small faction that has caused this upset, as is always the case, right? It's always just one person <laughs> that starts everything. And then you know, at the end of the episode, your interview with her, she says, you know, I don't understand the activism that's going on now. I don't have the exact quote, but she basically intimates that her existence as a trans person is very separate from the movement that we're now seeing. Yes. And also, and the reason why she split from Camp Trans, if my memory is right, is because there was an argument at Camp Trans that they should be allowing not only post-op um, trans women into Mitch Fest, but also pre-op. Yeah. And she said that, you know, she didn't agree with that. Nancy didn't agree with that. So, you know, that was part of the reason why she sort of... That's right. She Yes, she says, I can see why it would be very unsettling for women to be in a space with somebody with with a penis. You know, God knows, I they're, they can be frightening things. I had one for... 28 years. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> That's right. and, and of course, you know, me putting that in was deliberate. I mean, every every second of every episode of that series is, is there deliberately. So I'm sure every every fraction of a second. But um, yeah, I just what I liked about it, it was really subtle. And I suspect that a lot of the criticism that you got, if you did get a lot, is because pe- you know, the people's subtlety uh, sensors are, are not very finely attuned these days. They they probably w- they wanted it to be something else. They probably want were looking for an origin story of the current gender ideology movement and the current trans activism movement, which is frankly too young, I think, to have an origin story yet. I think it's gonna in ten years. I'd like to see you or somebody take that on. Does this topic make you nervous in a way that other topics don't? Like, are you, do you really think that, are you, are you afraid of going too hard on this and then landing in uh, some kind of camp that would get you really sort of professionally hurt? Like you would lose opportunities kind of thing. It's not so much that as I, you know, like I'm not a pundit. It's coming from the, from the fact that I don't consider myself a pundit. Like I, I, I don't have takes. And so I only, I only ever talk about something once I've gone down a big, long rabbit hole and investigated it from every single possible angle. And then I try and tell nuanced, you know, human, empathetic, curious stories as opposed to, you know, polemics. And I haven't gone, you know, and I um, I, I don't feel like I've done en- en- enough. I haven't gone down that road in this subject. And so anything I say won't have, you know, won't, won't have the depth that, that, you know, 
you know, I spent years on public shaming and I spent years on, you know, conspiracy theorists in my book, Them, and, you know, psychopathy and mental health labelling. You know, these are subjects that I that I feel I was in the middle of and explored from every possible angle obsessively for years. And I feel I can talk about them. And I haven't done that with the gender critical world yet. Wow. Mental health labelling is a huge part of the gender story. Right. Yeah, I, I can I can certainly see that like certain things that I've looked at in the past intersect with with this. Um, but I still just don't feel I don't feel qualified at this stage. It's really hard. Well, I also I mean, I've talked about this before. I think people don't want to touch it because so many of us have friends whose kids are caught up in this and going through this. And parents are understandably very protective of their kids. And and in some cases, there's a cognitive dissonance. I mean, they they have to they've have to go with it. Like if to 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 imagine that you might have made a mistake, it's too much to bear. Um, well, right. I mean, well, you you said something in the episode of yours that I listened to the other day. You you said you you were talking about social contagion. Now, you know, only a crazy person would think that social contagion doesn't exist. Uh, but you said you were you you think uh, it, I was listening to this. You know, I was walking the dog uh you said you know i think you know the social contagion is 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 huge and the actual trans people are very small um so i suppose i wanted to kind of ask you about that because you you know because i i have no idea like i have no idea how much social contagion how much is real but um but you've come to a place where you think that that the social contagion is big and the and the actual trans people as well. But, you know, like, I was curious, like, how did you come to that and so on? Well, if you look at uh, the cohort that we're most often talking about, which is kids, I mean, kids under, especially under 18, but certainly in the last 10 years, I think there's been a 4,000% increase in referrals to the Tavistock Clinic that the um, NHS, the gender for, clinic for the right. NHS for for gender dysphoria, especially among girls for under eighteen, for kids under eighteen. So you've got a four thousand percent increase. You've got gender clinics coming up everywhere. You've got middle school classes of twelve kids, where five of them are transgender. It's very similar. It follows a similar pattern to anorexia, to cutting. Autism is a huge factor. There's a big overlap between being on the autism spectrum and having gender dysphoria that is then expressed as trans identity. So I think that's all true. It's also true, I think, that there are trans people. There have always been trans people. There are, you know, a, a very small, small percentage of the population who will experience a gender dysphoria that is persistent and that is only really solved by transitioning. I think that's always been the case, but it is certainly, epidemiologically, it is impossible that the numbers that we're seeing have any kind of organic basis. Yeah, well, I was surprised when... Katie told me a little while ago that it's not done, you know, to say the word social contagion uh, because that's, you know, that's considered hate speech. That's considered hate speech. Well, every, everything is hate speech. Mm. I yeah. think I think our names are hate speech now. Just, right. you know. Right. 
back in my, town. Mine is, anyway. Um, right. Yeah. At least you've still got the out that nobody knows how to pronounce I know, name. exactly. At least I've, I confused everybody by changing the pronunciation of my name. Well, so I, 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 wanna, I don't want to keep you forever, but you know, as long as we're talking about incredibly sensitive things, I, I did want to ask you about something that you have not really uh, worked on publicly as far as I know, but I do remember when, back in 2017, the story about Rachel Dolezal broke oh yeah <laughs> and <laughs> she was the woman who was uh she was the head of a local naacp chapter in spokane washington she was a white woman who had been passing as black uh for a long time she darkened her skin she had braids she was very immersed in african culture that was her area of interest and uh she had actually apparently done a lot of a lot of good for that community. She was an activist. She was with the NAACP there. And she was outed as white, I think by her own parents, uh, by the way, right. if I'm not mistaken. But I saw you, I think you were on a stage, maybe in Australia or something, and you were being interviewed and you were asked about this. And you said, when that story broke, I thought, wow, I'm not quoting you, but this is what I remember you saying. You said, I, I thought, wow, what an opportunity to look at this. Like, this is going to be really interesting. We've been talking about, you know, being transgender, transsexual. Why can't you be transracial? Like, as a concept, like, this, this could be a really interesting avenue to explore. And then it was immediately shut down. You said, wow, it became instantly apparent that this was not going to be any kind of discussion that anybody was going to be allowed to have. And that was exactly the, I had the exact same reaction when that story broke. I thought, wow, this is going to be great. Like I was rubbing my hands together and then it was like, nope. <laughs> right. Well, I got into, you know, I, I got a little bit bruised over the Rachel Dolezal story. Uh, it, it happened, I guess, six months or a year after Say so You've Been Publicly Shamed came out. And I was really immersed in the whole thing. And there was, you know, there was some pushback. Because I said before, like, I think it's wrong to concentrate too much on the pushback when most of the response was very positive. But that's human nature. And, um, and, I, and there was already, like, people trying to... It looked like, you know, like a consensus waiting to form. I think that's, that's how it felt um, with, regarding me. Like there was people sort of edging towards me, trying to figure out what to think of me. Because I'd defended Justine Sacco. And so people thought, well, you know, have I got a motive? Am I, you know, have I got some ulterior motive for doing this? And then the, the Rachel Dolezal thing happened. And I sort of woke up. So this is what happened. I remember now. I woke up. Turned on Twitter, everyone's talking about Rachel. Oh no! I saw the Guardian. Like the, the Guardian, there was an article about Rachel Dolezal, and I thought, "Wow, this is interesting." I wonder what Twitter's making out of it. <laughs> so I went on. <laughs> so I went on Twitter, and it was just so dispiriting. You know, everyone was comparing her to Nike, appropriating black culture. You know, she was no different from Nike. You know, she was, <laughs> she like was no different than a major corporation. Wow, that's okay. <laughs> right. I like being compared yeah. to Nike. Okay. <laughs> Right. That, that, that was the sort of takes I was saying, you know, yes, another example of cultural appropriation, just like the big corporations do. And I just felt so dispirited and I kind of tweeted something, you know, you know, supportive of Rachel Dozo because I was just thinking, God, I am just, I am sick of us constantly making troubled people our playthings. And from what I could tell, you know, there was clearly something going on in Rachel 
themselves in a life that was leading her to do this. But nobody was nobody cared about her inner life. People just cared about, um, you know, her as a, as a metaphor, I guess. So anyway, I tweeted something and just the gates of hell opened. And I think all of these people who were sitting there thinking, feeling suspicious thoughts about because of my, because of my Justine Sacco story, which by then had become like a big story, like, like you know, uh, like a hand grenade thrown into the world, then took the, my tweet about Rachel Dolls out to, you know, be evidence and then sort of went for me. And, it, and that lasted a little while. And I was just so bruising. I just thought, you know, forget about that. That's really profound making troubled people are playthings. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what it is. You know, when we're on Twitter, if, if somebody's spiraling on Twitter, you're making mistakes or whatever, you know, it's quite often because there's something else going on in that person's life. Oh, totally. Yeah, we don't want to think that. We're amateur sleuths, you know, defining somebody by a few words and a tweet, by the by the tiniest fragment of their life. And yeah, we don't want to think that that's what we're doing, making troubled people our playthings, but that's what we do all the time. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. I cannot thank you enough. I, I was so excited to talk with you, and this has just been wonderful. Oh, Megan, I'm so pleased. And I've really enjoyed, I'm really interested in the stuff you're doing about kind of gender and men and women. I've got to say all of these years, well, all of these years, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about men and women um, as a thing. Really? Yeah, I haven't. I really haven't. I I guess because I'm more the sort of beater cuck type of gentleman and so i don't wait 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 what did you like... say Be- oh is, this a, is that the british pronunciation of beta yeah beta beta, beta? you're a beta yeah, cuck beta yeah i'm a beta <laughs> cuck so so as a consequence wow. i don't really so i don't really see myself as like you know, I, I don't know. I just never really think of things in terms of men and women. And but, but I've been listening with a great, with great interest to the stuff that you're saying about that. And I think it's an avenue that I want to explore myself. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. There's a lot there, obviously. Well, there's a lot there. There's exactly. Human there's, race is a testament to that. And it's surprising. You know, I'm, I've surprised myself that that I don't. I tend. I, I you know, it's not my default thing. Is thinking about men and women. So, so I'm happy. I'm interested to go down that road and see what it's All right. Well, maybe we'll have another conversation about that sometime. That's, uh, that's, that one is always, always timely. I don't think that's, yeah, uh, yeah. never, never not not going away. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you want to tell us about uh, future projects or are you, uh, everything is, um, is a TBA at this point? Well, I'm just finishing, I'm finishing a show for Audible, which I started before the pandemic, actually, and then I closed it down for the pandemic, and I'm just finishing it now. And I would love to talk about it, but I guess I can't because it hasn't been announced yet. But it's going to be my, my next show. It's it's a five-part series about a particular woman and about a couple of years in a particular woman's life where I'm just trying to piece it together. And I, I really, I, I think it's great. And I, I wish I could tell you more about it, but I, it'll be out before terribly long. Okay. Well, hopefully you'll come back and we'll talk about it then. I would love to come back whenever you, whenever you want me. Okay. Will do. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, John. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Megan. That was my interview with John Ronson. He is the author of the 2015 book, So You Have Been Publicly Shamed, as well as several other books, including The Psychopath Test, 
and The Men Who Stare at Goats. He's also a filmmaker and a podcaster. His most recent podcast is the BBC podcast Things Fell Apart. I cannot recommend it highly enough. This is The Unspeakable Podcast, now on Substack, as I have told you too many times already. It's also everywhere you normally get your podcasts. Nothing has changed. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. Please also check out my new podcast with Sarah Hader, A Special Place in Hell, which is on Substack and also everywhere else. Please consider quitting your job or abandoning your family so you can listen to all these podcasts. I'll be back next week and every week after that with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.